begin with a story. A very short but interesting story. There's a great Hasidic master who is named the Kotzker Rebbe. He's called the Kotzker Rebbe. His name is actually Menachem Mendel. Menachem Mendel from Kotzk. One time, the Kotzker Rebbe was walking down the path in a forest with one of his disciples. And to his, to his charging, there's two um, non-Jewish peasants who are hurling stones at them from the side of the path. And the disciple is getting all scared. He's like, maybe we should run. We should run back. They might hurt us. So the Kutzker Rebbe told them, don't worry. Get a little closer and you realize that it's all an illusion. There's no people. They're not throwing stones. These people, these people are not alive. What? What is that supposed to mean? But the Rebbe says, he got a little closer and he realized, yes, in fact, it was an illusion. He was, he was, uh, was it his, his perception only? Interesting story. Chassid turns to the Kutzker Rebbe and says, Rebbe, how do I know that maybe I'm, I'm also not real? I'm also not alive. Maybe I, I, my own life is an illusion. Like, how does this work? And the Kutzker Rebbe said, I'll tell you why. I'll tell you the secret. How do you know that you are alive? If you ever have thoughts of betterment, if you ever have thoughts of getting better, you know that you're alive. Because a dead person, a fake person, never seeks to get better. There was once a wise man who said that if you look at the, the, at the stream, at the river, and you see the fish at the river, there's a way to tell which fish is alive and which fish is not alive. What's the way to tell? So if you look really, really closely and see which one has movement, then you can tell which one's alive, which one's not, which one's floating, which one's swimming. But if you're from afar and you just see a whole bunch of fish, then I'll tell you a way you can see. If the fish is swimming against the current, going upstream, you know for sure the fish is alive. But if the fish is not going upstream, then you know they're possibly not alive. In other words, a way to see which, if the fish is alive, is it going against the current? Or is it just floating with the current? Now, why do I say these stories? Because till now in the, in the series, on the chapter and the section of Teshuvah and Tanya, we learned three major ideas. We learned uh, the fundamental premise of Teshuvah in Judaism, which is based on the fact that we have a relationship with Hashem, like a parent-child relationship, which is super rational. Then we spoke about the body of Teshuvah. What is the actual core mitzvah of Teshuvah? Which is just leave the sin alone and walk away. And then we went on to learn the soul of Teshuvah. The soul of Teshuvah is based on the idea you have to return the hay. Return the hay that, um, that in, in the word Teshuvah, Teshuvah hay. That's the soul of Teshuvah. Now, I want to get into a few tools of the trade. A few tools that the Tanya teaches in the realm of Teshuvah. And the common denominator between all of them, the common denominator between all of them, 
is that they they have they they come from a single premise, which the Tanya teaches, is that the functionalities of a person, the main functionalities of a person, which are his heart and mind, a person fundamentally has the ability to control them and not just float. Most people in the world, you look around, most people in the world are literally floating. They're floating. And not that what I'm saying is that they don't have necessarily purpose or meaning to their life. I mean, that, that also is a, a major problem. Identity crisis, they don't have purpose, they don't have a goal, they don't have, they don't have a plan. Okay, that's a problem. But even people that do have a goal do have a plan. In their basic functionalities of heart and mind, they're, they're, uh, they're, they're, they're taught, I'm saying we're, we, we are taught that both heart and mind are reactionary, are reactionary functions in the person, right? You, you control your thoughts, right? No one controls their thoughts. That's, 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 what, that's, a, that's a prevalent way to think of, of, of how your brain works. You don't control your thoughts. Your thoughts come to you. You don't control your emotions. We're emotional beings. Emotions come to us. Reactions to events, the circumstance, right? A person says something, someone, someone passes by you, triggers a thought. Something happens to you, triggers an emotion. So the two main functionalities of, of a person, which is their heart, heart and mind, and both the heart and mind are crucial and fundamental to the person's makeup, that every other attribute that a person has, whether internal or external, the actual limbs or internal um, um, abilities, they all stem from the heart and mind, mostly, mostly, unless we, we, uh, we keep it in check, we harness it, mostly, they're just floating, they're going downstream. But what the Tanya teaches fundamentally, and this is actually in the beginning of the Tanya, and everything is based on this, is that the heart and the mind are absolutely within the control of a person. You can't control your thoughts, and you should. You can't control your emotions, and you should. That is fundamental to Tanya, and that's going to be fundamental to every single one of the tools we're going to learn. So here's an important thing to understand. That there is, that, um, that, it's not 100% not true that heart and mind are reactionary as well. Okay, so things happen to us and it does trigger thoughts, does trigger emotions. That's 100% true. And that will happen to anybody. But the real question is, is what happens at the second moment? What happens at the second moment? Um, there's a famous, there's a famous um, idea that, uh, that, that, that's discussed about how to start a movement. Right? And I've heard this from many different people, um, and they're all quoting, they're all, um, this idea stems from one central person book. I'm not exactly sure where it's done, where, you know, where the exact source is, so I don't claim to know the source, but this idea I've heard on many, uh, many different fronts is that a movement is always started by the second person, okay? One person has a radical idea, wants to change the, the way the community runs, wants to change the way the show runs, wants to start a new walk for for children march wants to start an idea so he so, so the, the first person is uh is is the mashugana as we call it, right he has the radical idea the second person starts the movement the the second person who joins already makes it makes it normal makes it normal right and then that's what that's where it tips the scale and a lot many many times the, the lead the actual leader the person who sparked the movement is the first person but how many times do we have some people with, 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 with new ideas come and then it fizzles out because he didn't have the second person to endorse it. He didn't have uh, another person to show this is normal. 
One person is a dot. The second person, you already have a line. You could draw a line across. It has substance. Second person has substance. But I'm using this as an analogy when it comes to ourselves, when it comes to heart and mind, right? The question is, what happens at the second moment, not the first moment? So our, mind, our hearts and minds are reactionary, that's for sure. The question is, do we float with them or do we control them? So when a negative thought comes to you, everyone has negative thoughts. But then the question is, what happens in the next second? Are you able to, are you able to push it away? Or are you able to, or, or you're unable to push it away? You, have to, you just float with it. Same thing with your, with, with your emotion. So the, the, the real um, exercise that Tanya teaches again and again is how to harness your heart and mind. These two functions are key. And these two functions are the two functions that are 100% you're able to control. Now, there is one point between the heart and mind that you should know. Is that Tanya teaches that from birth, at birth, meaning naturally to the human being, the heart controls the mind. In other words, in be between these two functions, the heart is the higher function. Um, and you're, you're, you, you will notice again and again in your journey through Tanya that... Every suggestion, every tool that's given to tackle any spiritual ailment or to become a better person or any sort of suggestion coming from the Tanya is going to boil down to have some sort of mental exercise, which will then trigger some emotion. And from there, you'll take off. Because in order to become, in order for it to be integrated into you, in order for it to come to action, it needs to pass through the emotional stage even for a fleeting moment, right? Your, 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 your mind to your action is there's a, there's, there's, there's a narrow bridge and that narrow bridge is called emotion. So it needs to trigger the emotion and the more it triggers the emotion, the more it becomes, more it becomes, the more it becomes part of you, the more action you'll put into it. The passion, correct. The passion is, 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 is the main of the, of, the, of the emotional state of the person. The mind is very cold, calculated, cool, very rational. And how many times we have great ideas that don't come to actual fruition because it's missing that bridge. But the, the, the mental exercise is going to trigger something in the emotional field, which then will, 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 um, will reflect in the action. So it all starts in the mind. The control of the heart starts in the mind because, as Tanya says, Mitodase, from birth, Mayach Shalit Alalev. The mind controls the heart. Now you see many, many floaters. Now you see many, many floaters. <laughs> you see many, many floaters. And, and, and I'm talking about in ourselves. We float a lot. In other words, a lot of times the heart takes over the mind. A lot of times the mind follows the heart. A lot of times we lose control of both functions and we lose control of the function between them. The bridge goes the other way. But we 100% always have the ability and we should have the ability to constantly, constantly practice this and exercise ourselves and our mind to control our emotions. 100%. You always have that choice. Okay. With that introduction, we can get into certain, all the tools, but they'll all have this element of that it's fundamentally up to your control. On the topic of heart and mind, where the mind controls the heart, okay, and everything starts in the mind, and the genesis of every action is going to be in the mind, but it has to go through, has to go through the emotion. One of the ways that Kabbalah explains this idea that it must go through the emotion and emotion is what brings the action, is by comparing it to an ox. It says, which means a lot of wheat in the power of the ox. 
if you compare the plowing of a person and the limited amount he can plow, how much can one person plow, even the strongest person? Very, very limited. All of a sudden, you hook up the ox to the, to the, to the plow, and you can plow a whole field in no time. The ox represents the heart, because in our emotions, we are very akin to the emotions of the animal, to the, to the passion of the animal. The animal has natural tendencies to survive. Right? The, the animal has a limpic brain, we have a limpic brain, which is the tendency we want is just survive. And you have, the, you have your natural tendencies and, and, you, and you have a natural drive to survive. Okay, the intellect though is compared to the person. That's something that the animal doesn't have, okay? The intellect, intellect is something animals don't have, right? Their whole brain, by the way, they're the opposite. Their brain serves their, serves their heart. In other words, they only have a brain to calculate how to survive, right? Their whole brain is used to calculate actually materially how to survive, but they don't have abstract intellect. Abstract intellect is only given to the human. Now, abstract intellect is very, very great. That's where it all starts from. But you can imagine that with abstract intellect, the analogy is, is how much can you get done with abstract intellect? How much can already abstract intellect get done? How much do we spend time do we spend thinking, contemplating, making, building buildings in our mind, and nothing happens on, in action. Why? Because it's missing the power and the passion of the shar, of the, of the ox. So just to, just, to, just to demonstrate that everything starts in the mind, and the mind is where it's, where, where, where it, it, the mind is where it all generates. And mayach shalat which means the mind controls the heart, and that's where we have to, um, that's where we have to give a lot of focus and attention to. On the other hand, you have to know that it must come through the heart, and the heart shouldn't be just left to the side because the heart's going to give the passion which will bring to action. That's the dual functionality of the heart and mind. But both of them can be 100% within, within, within your control. Now, this is 100% connected to the free will. I wanted to point to, 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 to also to, um, to um, uh, touch upon this, this idea because free will in the Kabbalistic explanation is in, in the following view, the following view. True free will is not given to the person. You have to be much more specific. True free will is given to the godly spark within you. Okay? If you would take away the godly spark within you, then you would actually lose the power of free will. The creation of free will that God placed into this earth, he gave it to the human beings. He not to the angels. In fact, there's a scientist who asked the Rebbe, according to Torah, is there, can there be life on other planets? Can there be life on other galaxies? According to Torah. So we haven't found life yet. And there's a great debate in scientific, great scientific debate if we should pursue it. So the question is, according to Torah, if I would ask Torah, let me ask the rabbi, right? According to Torah, everything's, everything's in Torah. Torah. Torah can inform anything in life. So according to Torah, it, can there be life on other planets? And should we spend the billions and trillions Pursuing life on other planets. According to Torah, I'm asking. You know what the Rebbe said? The Rebbe said, actually, it's not ruled out. Life on other planets is not ruled out according to Torah. And it's very, very possible that it could be life. And actually, the Rebbe pointed to some sources in Tanakh which could allude that there may be life on other planets. Possibly. Possibly. However, the Rebbe said very, very clearly, you'll never find the power of free will aside from the human beings here on earth because here is where Hashem decided to give the Torah, and free will is intrinsically connected to the giving of the Torah. And because the Torah was given on this earth, and was given to, pur to purify this earth, 
the power of free will is also given to this earth and to the people who inhabit it, and every all other creatures would be on the same level as the animals or the angels. So it's an interesting fact. And in fact, the angels are called in Kabbalah a lot of times chayis. They're called animals. Why? Because they're lacking their free will. Where does free will come from? Free will is given to that spark of God within you. So imagine, imagine. Most people don't operate on free will, even though they're given free will. Most people, most of the time, don't operate on free will. Because we operate on our nature, our nurture, our how we're programmed, how we're educated, our tastes, our dislikes, our experiences, our traumas. Everything in life comes together behind the decision you have to make, even if it's the most basic decision, if you should choose vanilla or chocolate, if you should choose coffee or tea, right? Any choice you have to make, should I look here or look there? It's all informed by a huge backstory of your life. There's not real free choice, if you think about it. There's no real virtue. Everything's influenced. Everything's impacted from your whole life, from your nature, and from your nurture. Right? Great debate. Which one, which one plays out more? But either way, they're all going to inform your choice. So there's no real free choice. Says Chassidus, real free choice only, only, only is in the hands of the Almighty God. Right? Only Hashem Himself, who didn't, have, didn't need to create, didn't need to create, and yet chose to create. And did it, and, and he chose the Jewish people as a chosen nation, chosen nation, for example. Right? He chose to give us a Torah. This is the type of choice that is real choice. That's real choice. Because God has real choice because he really didn't have to. Nothing informs him, nothing impacts him. That's where real choice could be found. So it says Kabbalah, if you if you have a spark of God, that's where your free will resides. And how does it play out? It plays out that a human being who has a godly soul despite his nature and his nurture, despite his nature and his nurture, informing him to choose this way, he has the ability, the great ability, the unfathomable ability to choose the other way. Right? If, you're, if your nature and nurture is informing you to choose to do something that's coarse, material, not godly, not holy, and yet you choose the holy, you have to realize that's an ability only a person with a godly soul can, can do. An animal doesn't have free choice. The animal doesn't have free choice. The moment it's programmed a certain way, the moment it sensed danger behind it, the moment it started learning what's a predator, what's and 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 how to deflect the predator, moments it's all programmed in their mind, they can never unprogram that. That's the way they roll. But a person, a person had is programmed to go it a certain way, and he has a certain tendency, and he has a certain craving, and a certain no matter what it may be, always has a choice to choose the other way because he has a godly spark. And that's the exact same idea that we're talking about now, that a person, no matter where he's holding, no matter what happened, no matter where his heart, no matter how his heart developed and his emotions developed and, and his brain developed, and you can imagine the older you get, the more programmed you are, right? I'm saying the truth is that it's easier for, for, for children to choose good because they're less programmed in the world. They have less behind, less impact, but it makes absolutely no difference. No matter where you are, you can always, always, always control your heart and always control your mind because you have that spark of free choice. You always have Always have so now let's get some the tools of the trade, as I call it. The tools of the trade of Teshuvah. Okay? So I have, I have here written seven. If, you actually, if you're actually going to learn the, the Tanyan side, we'll be, be able to extract and dig up many, many, many pearls, many tools, many tidbits. But I chose seven. We'll share with that. We'll share these seven over here. And many of them are, are um, selected sources on source sheets, and we'll go through them. And 
I hope that we will, as after we go through all the stuff, we'll be able to discuss them as well. Okay. So the first one is in the motion of teshuva. And remember, teshuva means the constant motion of returning. Returning to what? Returning to yourself. Returning to who you really are. You really are in the shama. You just have to reveal it. The more a person sins and gets involved in materialism, it covers up. And now we just have to find the tools of the trade to uncover it. To uncover it. So number one is, one tool is to outdo yourself. What does it mean to outdo yourself? So let's read actually inside this source, and then we'll explain what it means. Number three. Says the Tanya. And this is what is written in Tana Develio, which is a Kabbalah book. What is it written over there? Adam Avar Avera. If a person sinned, and he's deserving of capital punishment before Hashem, what should he do that he should live? What kind of rectification can a person do? Says the Tana Develio like this. If he is used to reading one page, he should read two pages. If he's used to reading one chapter, he should learn two chapters. And this is analogous, this is the analogy that we brought like a rope that's severed, and you go back and you tie it. At the place of the knot, it is doubled. You have double. You have double the mass of the rope. What does this mean? If a person sinned, I have a solution for you. Says Tana Develio, you should outdo yourself. Every person has their comfort zone, has their limit. If I'm used to reading one page, read two. If I'm used to learning one chapter, learn two. And this applies to every area of life. We all have our limitations. We all have our limitations, right? Go the extra mile. In fact, Tanya actually um, brings a very interesting um, 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 law in Talmud. There's a law um, that, uh, that, that can be found in the laws of rentals. If a person comes and rents a donkey, it uh, can be compared to car renting these days, right? You rent a car, then you rented a donkey, okay? And you rent a donkey, and it costs $10 for 10 miles of ride. It used to rent a donkey. How long do you need it for? Was less significant to how far you're going to take the donkey, because that's going to wear out the donkey. So you're taking it for 10 miles, costs $10. Taking it for 11 miles, Cost twenty dollars. Okay, says the Talmud. Why? If ten miles is ten dollars, then eleven miles is eleven dollars. Why ten miles is ten dollars, but eleven miles is already twenty dollars? Because this donkey rental is used to renting out donkeys for only ten miles. The donkey is only used to going for ten miles, and you can't imagine the difficulty of that extra mile. That one extra mile is actually worth all ten miles. It literally has the value of all 10 miles. And the Tani uses this as an analogy also for the human being. Going that extra mile is harder than going all that you did before, right? And there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's an amazing, um, there's an amazing um, insight that people have 
into, and this is proven time and again, into, into world records, to world records, right? Once a world record is broken, it is broken many, many, many times, very frequently, right? If the world record is the person who ran 100 miles, okay? The moment someone runs 101 miles and breaks the record, it's easy for everyone to run 101 miles. It's the way it is, right? Whether it's, 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 it's psychologically like that, or whether there's a spiritual element to that, but the, but, but, but the idea is that once it becomes the norm, it becomes the norm. And to go out of the norm, even just a little bit, is all that more harder. Now, when it comes to teshuva, it works the same exact way. And the, the analogy that's used in the Tanya is that your relationship with Hashem can be seen like a rope. And we discussed this before. You should see your relationship with Hashem like a rope. A rope coming from your neshama to the source of your neshama. Your neshama is a piece of Hashem, but it's down here in the body. So it's held by like a rope. And this rope has 613 strands, says Tanya, right? You can imagine it's 613 strands. And your neshama has 613 compartments. And each strand is connected to another compartment. And every mitzvah is connected to another compartment. And, and you keep your neshama alive and well and fresh by doing mitzvahs that activate different compartments. Okay. When you do a sin, God forbid, another little strand in the rope gets cut. The more sins that we do, you can imagine this rope getting cut and weaker and weaker and weaker. Okay? The job is to rectify the rope, to fix the rope. Ha- so, completely severed is actually in the, the Tani the describes as a person who actually dies from a sin. Actually dies from the sins, which and the Tanya discusses that it doesn't really happen nowadays, but back in the times of the temple, it did happen. And there were certain eight there was a certain age, a cutoff age, of a person deserved death by that time, and actually a person died literally because his rope was cut. And Tanya explains why it doesn't work nowadays you don't see that, is because we are kept physically alive because of our state of being that we're not in the base of Mikdash, we're not in temple times. Our state of being is that we're kept physically alive, not necessarily only from the rope that connects our neshama. We're actually kept physically alive also from external forces. But in the times of the temple, and it will be in the times of, of the messianic era, our physical health, our physical life will be coming straight from our soul without any support of any external forces that are called klipa and kabbalah, whatever. And, and, and in the times of the temple, a person actually did enough sins, the rope could, could snap and, 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 and he actually loses his life. This is a true, this is a fascinating, fascinating fact. But in any event, in any event, when the rope gets cut, how do you rectify a rope? You got to do a knot. Think about it. How do you make a knot? You got to take some rope. You can't just put them together like this, face to face. You have to pull them over each other and make a knot. What happens is, before the rope was cut, how much mass of rope was in this area, in this inch? It was just a straight rope. Now that it's cut, you have to make a knot. How much mass is in this area? A lot of rope, because you have to pull the ropes over each other and tie them, and it's doubled and doubled. That's the analogy between a person and the relationship with Hashem. When you outdo yourself, you rectify the relationship, because outdoing yourself, going the extra mile, is like bringing more rope into the relationship. You're, you're going out of yourself and you're rectifying the relationship in that fashion. And now you're even closer. But it's not just closer, it's stronger. It's stronger. That's the idea. But that's, yes, a, good, a very good point. Yeah.
you have less ropes, you're closer. Yeah. Right. So that's that's the first tool of doing yourself. The second one, the second tool is harnessing your mercy. What does it mean harnessing your mercy? As Jewish people, we're known that we have three trade, we have three marks, three marks, trademarks, literally, of 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 of, uh, of, of the Jewish people. One of them is that we are naturally merciful. We are naturally, naturally merciful. It, we just cannot stand to see an underdog being an underdog. We, 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 our natural tendency as Jewish people, it comes together with having a Jewish soul, is that you have mercy on the underdog. And you can see this play out in the small Jew, in the singular Jew, and you can see it play out also in the large Jew, the Jewish people as a unit. I mean, just look at Eretz Yisrael, the government in Eretz Yisrael, and the army, and 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 the, the the mood of the nation. The mood of the nation is, is that as even though we know, we know that that it's not right to sacrifice our own soldiers, um, you know, um, to to save civ- civilians of the enemy that are kept as a, as human shields, right? And and it's a sad situation. And it's a terrible situation. And the terrorists that use human shields, they are the lowest of the low because they're the ones who are killing the kids. And not only that, they're forcing our, our boys to kill the kids, right? And even though that we, 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 we know that, 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 that the top priority is our soldiers, every single person still has the feeling that they, 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 they can't stand to see a civilian die. It, it, it gets the guts, it gets to our guts. And even though we know that they're using that as a pawn, and by the way, how, do, how come the terrorists use that? Use these civilians as human shields? Because they know that that's our reaction. They know that that's our reaction. If they were fighting against another country who couldn't kill us about civilian lives, they wouldn't use that as a tool. The Jewish nature is, is that you're merciful. Said the Tanya, you can use this nature and you could turn it on your own self in order to activate Teshuvah on your own heart. That emotion of returning your own heart. And the Tanya says like this, I want you to imagine, and here's the mental exercise. Remember we mentioned, you have the mental exercise will activate an actual emotion. So there's an emotion that lays inside of us mercy, a little bit of mercy in there. And if you go through a certain mental exercise, you actually activate the, that mercy. The, the, the analogy that's, that, that's used is the analogy of a king. Imagine a king, very, very pampered king. Yeah, very sweet, a sweet, a sweet, he was a sweet boy. He was a sweet man. He has a lot of passion, a lot of care. And, but he's, he's surrounded, he's pampered, and he's surrounded by gold and silver. He's surrounded by servants who do everything at his beck and call. He is a person who never had to, never had to clean a thing in his life. He's a person that is completely, completely protected, served from the moment he was born throughout his life. Okay? So, uh, 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 you could just think of the mental state. Try to imagine the mental state of this person how different he never has to uh, walk on the sidewalk and step on a, on a little bit of mud and get stuck to your shoe that never even happened that experience never happens to him he never has to walk into his kitchen and there's one dirty dish in the sink that experience never happens to him. we're talking about a, an experience of a person that's com- everything's completely clean sir he has the most amazing life one day um, a band of, uh, of, uh, of, of thugs storm into the palace, overtake the guards, go straight for the king, take the king, drag him into their car. 
They zoom away before anyone can do anything. They take the king to the forest. They take off his clothes and they put him in in uh, in uh, in in uh, in in, in uh, prison uh, prison garments. They take him take him to the sewer um, in in the middle of the forest of the little encampment and they throw him into the pit, the sewer pit. And they say here they take his head and they shove it into the sewer. Okay, try to imagine. As Tani says, imagine a great king whose head is literally. Um, 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 shoved into the sewage pail. Okay, try to imagine the contrast. The contrast. A person who never, who never had, to, never, never smelled the bad smell. <laughs> Anybody, but a, but imagine a person who never smelled a foul smell in his life was protected from a foul smell, from a speck, and has to live in a sewer tank in 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 in, in a matter of minutes. The contrast. Think about the contrast. Think about the contrast. Think about the immense contrast that that happens, and then all of a sudden, use your mental exercise to apply that contrast to what happened to your own soul at the time of birth. Use that use that contrast in your mind, the mental contrast, and contrast it to what happened to your own soul at birth. Imagine the pristine, spiritual, pure state that a soul lives in before coming down to this earth. Just imagine basking in the glow of the almighty light. Just try to imagine, you know, try to put yourself even a little bit in that perspective, even though you can't fully get there, but just get yourself into that mental state. And then, in one minute, the soul comes down to, the, to, to this world in a body, and then just look around at the world, and look around at the filth, and look around at especially the, the, the spiritual filth, and have complete pity on the contrast that this soul had to go through. It is incredible. It is incredible, as as the as the as the as the Tanya says. It is meigrerama labira mikta, which means from a high roof to the lowest pit in a second. When the, when you're going to go through this mental exercise, you're going to activate the natural tendency of of pity. It's simple pity, such such mercy you would have in your own soul. Once you activate that, you're ready on the path. To having a motion of, of teshuva, a motion of return, because then you start identifying with your soul. You have such pity. You want your soul to get back to a little bit of that pure light, a little bit of that pristine light, and you'll 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 naturally you know do a mitzvah. You'll naturally have a good thought, do a good deed, because you want your soul. You want it's as if you're you know you chance upon the king in the forest and you pick him up. You can't take him back to the palace. You can't get him back to his state. He's traumatized. So you you know you can't erase his trauma. You wash off a little bit of the mud on his face. You know you give him something to eat. You have such pity on on this person. You want to do something. Same thing you'll do for your soul. You want to look at yourself as third person over here. You want to say, imagine that you're looking at your own soul. Have the visual imagination of where it used to be and where it is now, and in the, the contrast between them, and use the what it's usually used as a third party emotion and a pity on someone else. You can use that on yourself by visualizing your own soul in the third, in the third, in the third person, and then it'll all come together, and you'll have pity on your soul, and you actually do some action, and you will brush it in the end, it's brushing yourself off. But, but just for the visual imagination of it, um, try to try to use your soul in the third person. We'll read the tiny inside. This little bit, um, um, source number two. So ha'echad, one way, one way to do this. Is to arouse heavenly mercy 
from the source of all mercy, on his neshama, on his soul, and his godly spirit, just imagine that it fell from such a high roof, from such a high place, from the source of all life, coming from such a pristine spot, to a low pit. This is the mental exercise to have to arouse mercy in your own soul to activate the motion of Teshuvah. But here's the third thing. There's a third thing. And this is called breaking the spirit. Breaking the spirit. This, in the modern world, has been largely forgotten, this tool. In fact, in many societies, many circles, it's looked down upon. But in the Tanya, this is a very powerful tool. Breaking the spirit. We, needed to, we need to do teshuva because the soul is covered up. Now, why is, what's covering up the soul? What's covering up the soul? What's giving that uh, the concealment? It's, it's the amount of materialism we indulge in and things that we do. But at the end of the day, it's this, it's this, it's this um, like, like shell that we've created around the soul by all our distractions. We're so distracted as a person, we're so distracted and we take, care, take part in all this materialism that the, 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 the shine of the, of the soul gets a little bit tarnished behind everything we're indulging in. The person, the person as a person, because we are not tzaddikim, we're not the righteous people who we live off of our neshama. You know, there's some people, we learned that there was a great Hasidic master that literally became enlarged, he became... Um, he gained weight from the great passion that he would answer in Shul. When he would say to the Kaddish, he would say, but we answer to the person saying Kaddish. We answer, and it was such passion he did so that he actually gained weight from it. Okay, So we're talking about some, some people, their lives were so connected to the Neshama, the Neshama shone, was shining so so much that their, their physical lives were just a reflection of their Neshama. By us, it's, it's the opposite. Our physical lives are like us. That's who we are unless we actively reveal the neshama. Says the Tanya, if you turn this around then, if you take your, the self, the ego, this whole veneer that you built up, and you break it, if you break yourself, if you break yourself, you break your ego, automatically, automatically, the neshama is going to shine forth. Let's look inside um, um, source number one. You'll see what I mean. It starts from here. It says in the Pasuk, and this is in Tehillim, we read like this. Zivchei elikim ruach nishbara. True sacrifice to Hashem is a contrite spirit. It's a broken spirit. Lev nishba venitcha. A heart that's trodden and that's broken. So, lev nishba venitcha elikim loitivaza. He will not despise, Hashem will not despise a broken and crushed heart. What does this mean? When we talk about the sacrifices in Torah, the sacrifices that are enumerated throughout Torah, and it's uh, the sacrifices, there are many, there's many different types of sacrifices, different motives for the sacrifice, different goals that, they, that, they're, that, they're, that, they're, um, that they're meant to accomplish. So many different details of the sacrifices. Again and again, you're going to see a different term coming up to each one of these 
sacrifices are numerated in Torah, and there's many of them. They're reach nichoach Hashem. They are sacrificed to Hashem. The Torah uses the word, as we learned this before, that there's two names of Hashem. There's there's a Hashem, there's Yud, and then a He, and then a Vav, and then a He. That is the, uh, the, the source of all life. That's the, the, the inner name of Hashem. And then there's Elikim. The Elikim is the name that we use here, which, is, which means the mighty one, which is more of a external layer, external level of Hashem. So what this Pasuk is saying is that usually a regular sacrifice is Reach Nechoach Hashem. It uses the term Hashem, the other name of Hashem, the, the, the more higher name of Hashem. It's a sacrifice to Hashem. But then there's one sacrifice that could be a sacrifice to Elikim. There's one sacrifice that even to the external, this can, this, can, this can break through. This can actually, even to the external, this can actually have an effect. And that is a crushed heart. Even in a time when we, are, when we don't have a temple, we don't have sacrifices. We don't have the actual sacrifices. We, it, to, to access Hashem is very, very hard. And we're only, our relationship with Hashem is usually in the level of Elohim. It's more of an external relationship. That's how much we can, that's how much we can advance. That's how much we're familiar with. There's still a way to sacrifice. There's still a way to give a sacrifice to Hashem. Not by sacrificing an actual animal. Not by sacrificing the, the, the spices or the, or the, or the, or the flour, the different types of sacrifices there are. But sacrifice of your own spirit. Literally by breaking your own spirit, that's a sacrifice to Hashem. That's what it says in Tehillim. And Tanya teaches that this is an incredible, incredible tool to be used in the art of Teshuvah. In the art of revealing your soul. Whereas the, the tool that we just discussed before about arousing mercy, you don't actively take on and fight this layer that you put on top of your soul. You more shine mercy and you like redeem. You redeem. You, you redeem the king instead of fighting the bandits. You know what I'm saying? It's, you just shine mercy and your soul comes flying out. There's another tool. It's more of like the negative side. You can actually take on this cap. That's this, 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 this dirt that's put on top of the soul. You can actually take that on by actually breaking your own spirit, by breaking your own ego. If you break your own ego, you feel crushed. You feel, you feel like completely crushed and that itself can shine through. And when the bubble bursts and it's painful and someone, and you feel insulted and, and you know, sometimes the, per, the person who, the bigger the bubble, the truth is the bigger the bubble, the thinner it is, the more sensitive the person is. The bigger the ego, the more sensitive it is. A person says one wrong word and, and they, they feel insulted to the depths of their core. And, and, and the person didn't mean anything wrong because they're so sensitive, their bubble is so thin. But when the bubble bursts, when the bubble bursts, there's two reactions. Either you look at the pieces of the bubble all around and you mourn the loss and you feel insulted and you feel victimized and you feel traumatized and you say that my entire bubble that I built around myself, which was, which was made of self, which was informed by self, which taught me self, which all I saw was self, everything was myself. It burst and I'm angry. I want to get back. I want to get it back. Either you can look at the pieces lying on the floor or another reaction is to look now that the bubbles burst, what's beyond the bubble? Sometimes now is the time you can look, look up, 
look around. There's people, there's things. There's meaning, there's purpose. There's things beyond the bubble. And this beyond the bubble is the shining of the soul. The soul is within you. The soul is the transcendence, the possibility and the potential of transcendence that you have within yourself. And when you have the moments of transcendence beyond yourself, that's your soul shining, it's your soul speaking. And the more we indulge in materialism, again, what's, what's creating the, this massive bubble called the ego is not necessarily the indulgence, the indulgence of the materialism. It's that it's your indulging. It's you. It's the self. So much. You're just feeding yourself. I want this. I want to feel good. I want the pleasure. I want, I want more. You know, it's all, it, it's the you. It's the you. It's everything is you. And it builds up this massive bubble. It's not the wrong word, but um, what, what I'm saying is that, that, that the ego is, is a more of a fundamental issue than just taiva. Because that taiva, taiva means the feeling of, uh, of pleasure seeking. Pleasure seeking, right. Lust, whatever. So that itself, if it's left on its own, it's, it's on the table by itself, not connected to anything else, it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just a feeling. You can't have anything against the feeling. When the feeling is attached to a person, all of a sudden, what's the problem? Because the problem is it's attached to this person's self. You know, and, and that's what's created the ego. And that, it, it's a much more underlying problem over here, which we all constantly have to fight. I mean, and, and, and you know what? The bubble bursts, and the next day we're building another bubble. So, you know, we're constantly doing this. But, but the point is that when the bubble bursts, know what kind of reaction you have to have. And more importantly, learn how to burst, burst the bubble from time to time. Learn how to burst the bubble. Learn how that you crush yourself. And the tonics gives some, some very articulate programs on how to do it. I mean, one of them is, is, is called Cheshben HaNefesh. This is an exercise done by Chassidim throughout the centuries. Cheshben HaNefesh is, and tonic cautions, is not something you should do often it's something you should do at pre-prescribed times and cheshben and nefesh is 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 which is accounting of the soul it's an accounting of the soul it is literally if i can use an analogy it is literally the same as an accounting as a business person does on their business a store owner any any good store owner any good business owner knows that there are the moments of the year or the month when it's accounting time oversight a good manager, a good director, a good CEO, a COO, whatever it may be, there's the oversight elements of their job, which can, can be the most, uh, you know, the worst part. But you have to actually come and make the calculations and go through all the people's jobs and all the operation and all the merchandise and take an accounting of what came in, what went out, who's expendable, who's not expendable, who's, who's moving up in rank, who's getting fired. It's a rigorous process, but it must be done for the health of the company. It must be done because you have to know if we're accomplishing our vision, we're accomplishing our mission, if we're, re if we're reaching our goals, we're reaching our monthly goals, our, 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 our what? Our intentions, our metric. Are, are we successful? How do we know if we're successful? We have to have some sort of metric. We have to, we have to pull up all the data and we have to, we have to, we have to put it against the metric, right? This, this, this is, all these exercises are integral to the business. But you should know that if a person is, is doing this all day, a whole day, his business is going to absolutely fail. Because you cannot be involved in these exercises all day, every day. You actually have to run the business all day, every day. There's certain times, whether, you know, it's end of the year, 
at the, at, the, at the end of the month, when you have to go into the accounting mode, you have to have those meetings, you have to take restock of the merchandise of the people of the, of the business or what, whatever it may be. But uh, on a day-to-day basis, it's about running the operations. You know, it's about running the operations, it's about uh, in, in, in empowering the staff, it's about buying and selling and opportunities and going to shows and, 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 and standing by the cashier and, 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 and whatever, whatever business you may be in and meeting clients, trying to sell a car, whatever business you may be in, you got to actually go through the business. The same thing when it comes to your soul. Day in, day out, you, we got to do Torah and Mitzvah. We got to be good Jews. We got to be good people. We got to do the things. We got to do the Torah. We got to do the life. We got to do all the mitzvahs, whatever is instructed of us. We got to go through the motions. We got to be as best as we can. And we know throughout the day we're picking up a lot of garbage and we're picking up a lot of good stuff. You know, we're human beings. So we're, you know, things are flying from all, from all sides. And the main thing is to do as much good as we can at the moment. Not to think about, not to double think yourself. But then once a week, once a month, um, there's a time to make an accounting. Look back. Once a year. Look back. What have I accomplished? Have I done, what have I, what have I done in the negative? What have I done in the positive? What things I need to grow in? What things are going good I need to do more of? Who did I hurt? Who did I help? Who needs my help? Who did I fail? Who did I, right? You, you gotta make from time to time that chesed. And if you're honest, if you're very honest, and you use this, and you take it very seriously, making what's called a cheshvan anefesh, this accounting, this will break the bubble. Because it calls for a good, hard look at yourself, and good honesty and sincerity, and it will burst the bubble. The, the, um, the chassidim had usually, usually in, in the chassidic life, there's, there's three major intervals when we do cheshvan anefesh. So one is before Shabbos, the end of the week, Thursday night. It was traditionally a, a good night for that. And that was like on a more of a smaller scale. It's this week. Look at the past, this past week, you know, um, where have I gone and where do I want to get to the next week? The breaking of a spirit, which is a good thing to break your spirit, break your ego, it's a little bit painful. And you get very honest with yourself, it gets a little bit painful. And the correct reaction to that pain once it's done is not to look at the, at the pieces on the floor, but to look outside the bubble. Finally, oh, what, uh, where should I be transcending to? All right, should we go on to the next tool? Sure, okay. So number four, uh, the tool of connection. Natanya says that we learned that there's two types of teshuva. There's teshuva tata and teshuva ilah. The lower teshuva and the higher teshuva. And we spoke about this last time, is that the lower teshuva is a teshuva literally of returning from sin. But the higher teshuva is done even by people who never did a sin. It's, it's a teshuva, it's the motion of return, of getting one, at oneness with Hashem, of returning to your soul even without a sin. The very fact that your soul is in a body and it's detached from its source, it, 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 it's asking us to go into the motion of teshuva to, re, to have that constant motion of returning to our source. Not that we're supposed to actually return to the source. The goal is not to actually get home, right? And the goal is not actually to die, but to be in the motion of return. And that itself is teshuva, even if you didn't do a sin. What does it mean? What does it actually look like? What it actually looks like is, you look at God, and you say, everything he has, I want. I want to be like him. I want to be like him. And the Tanya actually goes through, the Tanya actually goes through five different aspects of a person, and says, I want to be akin to Hashem. I, I, you want to be connected to Hashem on all levels. On all levels. So we'll go through them. 
Number one is in your emotions. In your emotions. The Torah tells us that a person should try to emulate the Creator. Mahu rachum afatem rachum. Just like Hashem is merciful, try to be merciful. And the, the, the Torah actually teaches us many different aspects of Hashem's attributes. He's kind, He's merciful, He's disciplined, or whatever it may be. Try to emulate that. You want to emulate that in your life as well. You want to become God-like in your life as well. So a person who's always looking, I want to be like Hashem. I want, I want, I want to act, I want my, 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 my midas, I want my, um, my internal attributes to be very, very, I want to be like Hashem. If you, if you, if you love, if you love someone so much, you want to emulate them. You want to emulate them. So you want to emulate Hashem. And this also plays out in seicha, which means in, in, in your intellect. In your intellect. In your intellect as well. Says the Tanya, that's Iyun Torah. That's learning Torah with a lot of depth. Take your brain and its intellectual capacity and flood it with learning Torah. Literally go into depth of learning Torah. Use your, your, your capacity for, for the back and forth of, 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 uh, of intellectualism, right? The, 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 the deep contemplation that we're all capable of doing that, right? You could contemplate the stars, you could contemplate the plants. You can contemplate an idea in Torah. Literally, dunk your brain in Torah. And it's not just like, oh, just learn passively. Actively. Understand. Rip, rip it apart. Break it apart. And then this also applies. You want to emulate Hashem. You want to get connected to Hashem. You want to become a God-like. In your machshava, which means your thoughts. Thoughts and intellect are not the same thing. I tell you the difference between your thoughts and your intellect. You can think that one plus one equals five, but you cannot intellectually understand that one plus one equals five. Okay, I'm just giving you an example. Your intellect is your is your is your uh, capacity for uh, for critical, rational, um, critical thinking. But even your shallow thoughts, thoughts that make no sense, right? Even your just the thoughts going into your brain, right? Just, just the, your your with the the constant brain activity, not the actual active brain activity. Even the constant brain activity that it's also should be godlike. Fill it with godly things. Let the thoughts come to your come to your head also be holy things. Right? You should just be picking up and dropping off in your brainwaves just holy ideas. The Rebbe had actually a campaign called the Holy Books Campaign. What's the Holy Books Campaign? That you're in your house, you should have on shelves of holy books. Now, listen. There was another campaign the Rebbe had, the Torah campaign, which means that we should be Engaging and learning Torah and teaching Torah at a high rate, at a very, very high rate. And, and the Rebbe encourages this, and that's why all Chabad houses, any Chabad house, adult education, kid, children education is, 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 a main, is a main element of a Chabad house because this is, this is a, a, the Rebbe's very, very passionate, passionate plea that we should be engaged in teaching and learning Torah as much as possible. That's one campaign. But then you had another campaign, separate, separate campaign, independent. The Rebbe's holy books campaign was it was that you should literally fill your house with holy books. The surroundings of your house should have that flavor, that 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 that, 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 that flavor and the, the nature. Your house should have a natural sense of literally holy books. What you mentioned about paintings and music, you know, who who's the author of the books that you're reading? Who's the who's the who's the author of the music you're listening to or the painting? And and why? Because it's not necessarily your direct consumption. Now, why, why do I bring up this point? Why do I bring up the point of the, of the campaign for holy books? Because I'm, I'm, what I'm saying is just that even your thoughts, even your passive thoughts, should just be 
thoughts of holiness. Now, even your speech. Your speech says the Torah that what is the speech of God? It's halacha. The law as opposed to the, the rest of the gamut of Torah thoughts because Torah thoughts can be compared to the intellect of Hashem. There's a lot of, there's a lot of moving pieces, a lot of discussion back and forth. But then there's the cut and dry law of how to actually act as a Jew, which is, makes up the halacha. That is like the word of Hashem. Imagine a person thinks a lot and then he decides what I'm actually going to say, right? What he says is like the, the, the is like the, the end, the end, the ending of the entire thought process. It's the actual, the actual word is, 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 is what's meaningful to the, to the other person. I don't know what you thought. I don't know what you said. So that's why it's considered like the speech of Hashem, because this is what's actually meaningful for action. And then there's the action of Hashem, says Tanya, it's tzedakah. Engaging in tzedakah very regularly, very often, engaging in tzedakah. It doesn't have to be large amounts necessarily, but it should be very routine. Routine is the key, very often, because the act of tzedakah is a very godlike action. You're acting like Hashem, because Hashem routinely does tzedakah every single second, keeping the world in constant motion, keeping the world created. It is the greatest tzedakah that ever happened. Hashem doesn't have to do it. Hashem doesn't owe anyone anything. He's doing the greatest tzedakah. We on earth want to emulate Hashem in action, give tzedakah very regularly. This is what it means to do teshuva from Ava, with connection in these five different, whether it's in the midrash, which is the emotion, whether it's in the seichel and the intellect, whether it's in machshava, in the thoughts, the dibur and the speech and halacha, or doing tzedakah, and all these five things, a person tries to constantly engage all his faculties, faculties to be godlike. That is a tool, it's another, it's a motion of teshuva, wanting to constantly be aligned with your inner soul. Um, another few, another few tools. Tool number five is understanding the ability for dual emotions. Why is this important? Because on one hand, we want to attempt to have the broken spirit. And on the other hand, we want to attempt to have the teshuva from Ava. We want to attempt to have the connection. The question is, can this be done? What, can, can this be done by the same person? Can a person engage in these two tools? They seem to be a little bit contradictory. If you think about it, right? It seems to be a bit contradictory. You uh, either are engaging in breaking your spirit, breaking yourself, which is you know, which causes a little bit of sadness and pain. And it's like a, it's a little bit of a negative sort of thing to do, which is very it's a very necessary pain, but it's pain. Or you want to engage in a very loving relationship, the relationship with 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 uh, with, with love. Says the Tanya like this. Look at number four. Like it says in the Holy Zohar, which this is the Bible book of Kabbalah. The original book of Kabbalah is the Zohar. It says, Happiness is stuck in his heart from this side, etc. And sadness from the other side. What's the story? The story is that there was a great rabbi. His name was Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. He was the author of the Zohar. And he was the greatest of all teachers of Kabbalah in the, in the past generations. And he was teaching his son. And he's teaching his son the secrets, the inner dimension, the soul, and the meaning of what it means to have a Beisamek, there's a holy temple. Not just, he wasn't teaching him about the structure of the temple or the function of the temple. He was teaching him the Neshama, the soul of the temple, and what that meant for the world, and what that did, and what kind of godly energy was coming down to the world through the temple. And as he's hearing this Torah, his son, was getting so excited because he's hearing the secrets of Torah. 
what happiness, what joy was filling his heart at the time because he's hearing from his father secrets of Torah that not many people can hear. And at the same time, we're dealing with a time in history where it was after the destruction of, of the temple. So at the same time, profound sadness in his heart. Profound sadness in his heart because he's, oh my gosh, I didn't realize what, what we lost. As my father's talking and I'm hearing about the Holy Temple and we don't have it anymore, profound sadness enters his heart. Says Azor, and both in one side of the heart was happiness, in the other side of the heart it was sadness. And you should know that the human being has the capacity for dual emotion as long as it's coming for two different reasons. You have the capacity to have dual emotion in your heart, one going this direction, the other going in the other direction, simultaneously even. If it's coming for a different reason, you have the capacity for it. And therefore, these two types of tshuva are not mutually, mutually exclusive. They're not at all. They could be engaged at the same time. You have the capacity to engage in both of them. Another tool, another tool that, um, that the Tanya brings out is the tool of confidence. I'm going to call it confidence. So what's the tool of confidence? That when you engage in teshuva and you're engaging in, in, uh, in, in, in repentance, in, uh, in, um, in, 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 um, in accounting, in uh, stipulation, right? You must always approach it from a point of confidence. The reason why, and this is based on what we started off with this entire series, is because you know at the outset, no matter what you've done, no matter where you're standing, no matter how thick the layer of dirt is on your neshama, you're dealing with a child-parent relationship with Hashem. Once you're on this, once you're on those terms, you have confidence that Hashem will forgive you. And the Tanya says a fascinating, fascinating insight. And I want to read this inside. And as we say the blessing every time we say the Shemineshe, which is the three times a day we say the 18 blessings of the Amidah. Take if Shemivachim Slachlanu. One of the paragraphs of Shemineshe is Slachlanu, which means Hashem, please forgive us. It's the three time daily asking Hashem for forgiveness. How do we end off? We end off by saying, Baruch Atta Hashem, bless you Hashem. We say a blessing with full confidence. We say, Chanon Hamar He was merciful and he, uh, with his abundance of forgiveness, he forgives in abundance. Says the Tanya, you have to realize that this is a very scary thing you just did. A very scary thing. Why? Because there is a law. A very scary, scary law in the halacha. That one is not allowed to say a blessing in vain. You're not allowed to utter Hashem's name in vain. It's against the halacha. Just like it's a mitzvah to say a bracha before you eat. We say a bracha um, many, many times for many different reasons. We say a bracha before we go to the Torah. We say a bracha before we light candles. Right? We say brachas a lot of times. It's a mitzvah to say a bracha. At the same time, it's a complete avera to say a bracha if it's not needed. Because you never let Hashem's name be uttered in vain. Says the halacha, what happens if you're in a situation and you're not sure if you should say the bracha? You're not sure. You're not sure if you should say the bracha. You're about to eat the apple and you say, tell yourself, did I say a bracha? Or did I not say a bracha? I was so spaced out. Did I say a bracha or not? You're not sure. The halacha says, don't say the bracha. Better to err on the side of caution, on the side of leniency, 
Brachas, Suffolk Brachas Lahakal. That's the term, which means if you have a doubt in a bracha, Lahakal. But it's the air on the side of caution. Don't say the bracha because the air of saying a bracha in vain is so bad. Okay? That's the halacha. All of a sudden, we stand three times a day and we say, Baruch Hashem, we say a bracha, Hashem forgives us. Well, how are you so sure? How are you so sure that Hashem forgives you? How are you so sure? Isn't it a bracha Suffolk Lahakal? Isn't it? If you even have a, a, an ounce of doubt, you're not allowed to say a bracha. But we say a bracha, Hashem forgives us. As if we're like, it's not even a question. But the, but the idea is that if the rabbi is instituted in the Shemineser that you should say this bracha, then it's telling us something. It's telling us that you should never even have the doubt that Hashem will forgive you. The very fact that we say a bracha, the same rabbis who instituted the, the, the canon of, 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 uh, of, of prayer, the, the, there's a mitzvah of prayer from the Torah, but the rabbis they established the actual, the actual, the, the actual liturgy of the of the of the of the of the, of the prayers. They're the same, the same. It's coming from the same source. This, these are the same. This is the same body who established the blessings that we say before food, before the mitzvahs, and it's the same body that established the halacha that you're not allowed to say a bracha if you have a doubt. It's all the same body establishing this, and yet they established the bracha chan means that Hashem forgives us with confidence. Yeah, what, what kind of confidence do you have to have? Tremendous confidence. You have to realize that there's obviously, must be, that there's absolutely no doubt that Hashem will forgive us. There's absolutely no doubt that Hashem forgives us. And you know what? Then there's a flip side of this as well. If you say the bracha, because Hashem doesn't want you to say the bracha in vain, He has to forgive you. There's also that side of it. Right? There's like a famous story of the wise child. The wise child Tells his father, I want the apple. You know, back in the day, the fruits were like candy. You know, all right, in moderation. No, you already had an apple today. I want the apple, I want the apple, I want the apple. You already had an apple today. And all of a sudden, the wise child screams out, Baruch atah Hashem, lekenu melechlam, He says the brach on the apple. And the father says, hey, quickly, eat it, eat it. <laughs> right? The same thing that happens with Hashem. We say, Baruch atah Hashem, Khan and the marbli You forgive us. Hashem says, I forgive you because the brach the bracha of Atah is going to be a brach in vain. But such confidence is how you're meant to approach it because you know you're dealing with, you're dealing with a father. You're dealing with a parent. We're dealing on the terms of a parent-child relationship. If that's the kind of confidence you could approach when it comes to teshuva. Now, the last tool um, I want to say is the tool of redemptive suffering. Redemptive suffering. We have to realize that in Jewish tradition, this idea of Gehenna, the idea of purgatory. Not, I don't like to say the word purgatory because that usually has a Christian connotation. But, um, but the idea of Gehenna is, the, is where a soul who has accumulated a lot of dirt going through the journey of this world goes through a cleansing process. In Jewish tradition, Gehenna is not a punishment. Hashem doesn't need to punish the soul. He doesn't, get, he doesn't need to get even. He's not, a, he's not an angry old man. He needs to get even. With, the, with those who do sins, but you, on your own volition, throughout the time that we're here, tarnish the soul and and uh, and uh, got a little dirty, so you, on your own volition, you would want to go through the cleansing process that your soul did not retain all the stains from all the sins done in this in this world. Now, the it's painful. Gehenna is very painful. It's a painful process. I mean, it could be akin to, you know, we're always taught that if you get a cut, you get dirt in the cut, and you run to the infirmary in the school, and they put an alcohol swab on the cut, right? And it hurts. What does the nurse tell you? If it hurts, we're getting clean. 
if it wasn't hurting, you know that it's not getting clean, right? This is when you leave everything like a Right, exactly. Essentially, the rabbis, uh, the rabbis say that Ganem is where you have to relive through your life and the tremendous shame of watching yourself yeah. in the world of truth, in the world of truth, watching your own movie, in the world of truth, watching all the foolishness that you did, that shame itself is the pain of cleansing. That's all it is in Kaddish, is that for the maximum a soul is in the process of cleansing is, is 11 months. And so the souls down here who still have the ability for good. Once you're up there in the, in the, in the, in the, in the world of truth, you are, it's all static. In other words, whatever you've done, you've done. There's no more, you don't, you don't, there's, no, there's no more second chances of actually doing mitzvah. But your descendants that you left on this world can, um, can constantly and continuously do mitzvahs on your behalf. And saying Kaddish helps you through the cleansing process. Says the Tanya like this. That if you go through suffering and pain in this world, that can redeem the cleansing that may be in store in the next world. Now this is a very, very important, important idea I want to bring out. Because you may think, as the Gemara says, the Mishnah says, that 70 years of pain and suffering in this world is less painful than one hour of Gehenna. Okay? You may think if 70 years, 70 years of pain in this world is less than one hour of Gehenna. So how much cleansing already can happen in this world? How much cleansing already? Right? But says the Alter Rebbe and Atani, you have to look at it the other way around. You have to look at it the other way around. Because this world was built Primarily, with many attributes of God, the Kabbalah teaches. There's 10 different attributes of God. Primarily, the world was built with the attribute of kindness. The, 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 the material, the, the material that makes up the physical makeup of this world, it's, there's 10 different materials made from different godly energies. But the primary one is kindness. Oilam chesed yibanes, says the Pasuk, says the verse. The world was built with chesed, with kindness. Therefore, therefore, a little bit of pain in this world can do tremendous cleansing even though the pain itself is less than the pain of Gehenna. You have to understand. The pain of Gehenna of one hour is more painful than 70 years. But the act of cleansing that this pain causes down here, one little aspect of pain down here can cause tremendous cleansing to your soul. What's the analogy? The analogy is incredible. Look at the last source. Because this world was built with kindness. And with very light pain. Very light suffering. And this world can save you from very severe, severe pain in the next world. As the analogy goes. If you see the shadow of the sun on the earth move but a little bit, just a cubic, you know You know that the sun must have moved thousands of miles during the, that interim time. If, because the way it works is, because um, the, the, the earth relative to the sun, right? It's so far away, and I'm actually going to use the earth as the center over here, because according to the Torah, the earth is at the center, not the sun, right? 
This is a famous, the Rambam holds that the Earth is at the center and not the Sun. Now, modern scientists hold that the Sun is at the center and the Earth orbits around the Sun. But the Rambam and Torah holds that the Earth is at the center and the Sun rotates around, around, around the Earth. And according to the Rebbe, because of the theory of relativity, it's actually impossible to see. If you're standing on the Sun of the Earth, it, it, or, or, or it was in its orbit, it's impossible to actually see which one's orbiting around which. But we believe, according to Torah, there's disagreement, 100%. But I'm saying, I'm saying science itself had, had its own disagreement. Science itself is not 100% sure. Right now, the normative thinking is that the sun is in the center, but the Torah holds that the earth is in the center. Now, now if the sun, now, it, it, either way, this, this analogy will work. If, if you take the science model or, or the, 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 I would say the contemporary science model, because in, uh, in, 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 in two days it could all change. As we see, the big, big theory is being debunked and not debunked. And <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, the theories of science are never absolute. But the point is, the analogy still works. If you see the shadow of the sun along the earth and you watch it, and it moved a little bit, right? It was, it was at the edge of the table. You know, when you had a picnic, you know, the sun moves from person to person to person. You know, everyone gets a little bit of the, a little bit sunburned as you sit around the picnic. So the sun is moving along the picnic mat. And the picnic mat is about two, two, two and a half feet, okay? So the, 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 the shadow of the sun, because you have a tree next to you, so the shadow moved about two and a half feet. Do you know how many thousands and hundreds of thousands of miles the sun actually moved in the sky for it to reflect in the two and a half feet over here? Because the sun, has, is, is, the sun is moving incredibly fast. Incre the orbit is incredibly fast. But because the orbit is so much bigger so far, the orbit, the circle of the orbit is so much bigger than the actual center, which is the Earth. Because it's so much bigger, so thousands of miles along the orbit, the shadow on the Earth is going to move about a few inches. That is the analogy you should look at our world and the next world. You should look at our world, just a little bit of pain over here, a few inches, has such an effect and could cleanse so much as it would take thousands and thousands more times that amount up in the next world. And you know what? This proves true. Also, not just the pain and suffering, and you should look at it, and I'm saying the lesson is to look at it as redemptive suffering. You have a little bit of pain and suffering, Hashem caused. You can always look at it with a good eye, because it's a cleansing process. But this also works with good deeds. As we learn, a good deed that's done down here, a mitzvah that's done, that's done down here, what the Kabbalah says happens in the heavens by a mitzvah done down here, it's incredible. The, the, go, the godly light that angels and the heavens never see goes exploding through the heavens by doing a little act down here. A little act down here. I mean, like, well, this is such a lowly world. But that's why Hashem created Because our world is the purpose and all the other heavenly spheres are but a means to the end and the end is our world. The end is to actually do a mitzvah here and bring a little godliness into this lowly place to bring Mashiach a little bit closer. That is the purpose. Because we are in the realm of purpose, a little action here is so much more infinitely, so much more infinitely precious than the actions of, of any other sphere and the, and the effects are, are, are incredible. Yeah. We ask Hashem in prayer, please forgive, not, forgive us and please cleanse us without the need of suffering. And Hashem does that. With asking for forgiveness, when we do teshuva, we don't need the suffering. But that's for the future. In the past, if you retroactively, if you look back, you had some suffering, there's a specific view Tanya wants to look at it. 
not to hope for suffering, never in the future. We ask Hashem never to give us suffering, but to forgive us without the suffering. And Hashem can do that. But retroactively looking back, there's a certain perspective you're supposed to look on suffering. It wasn't for naught. It wasn't, a person, a person uh, suffers for, for nothing. That's where the real suffering, this, this, uh, that's where the real suffering takes place. Once you, once you see, as the nurse tells you, it's getting clean. All of a sudden, this is a little better, right? So there's a way to look at it in the past to say, you know what? That actually, that actually gave me some value. And it's a very redemptive, very, very redemptive way to look at it. There's a famous story, a famous uh, parable of a guy who's commissioned to drag heavy rocks from a cave down the path all the way to the bottom of the mountain. And day in, day out, drag the rocks, drag the rocks. Fills up a sack, he's dragging heavy rocks. After a couple of days, he's already getting tired of this business. And he's not just getting tired from actually schlepping. He's getting tired because what's the purpose? No one ever told him what the purpose is. He's dragging rocks, he's dragging rocks in the path. The guy who commissioned told him, you know what? The rocks, you can keep. You can keep the rocks, all the rocks you keep. So he's dragging rocks, he's like, what do I care? Keep the rocks. What do I care? It doesn't help. It doesn't make my load any lighter by telling me that I can keep the rocks. Who cares about the rocks? The next day, the guy tells him, you should know that the rocks you're carrying are actually diamonds. Ooh, he's carrying diamonds that he can, that he can, that he can keep. All of a sudden, no more complaints. <laughs> There's no more kvetching. There's no more suffering. He's running down the path with those rocks. He's running back up to take as many sacks as he can before this guy terminates his contract. Oh my gosh. If you see it in a certain perspective, it gives it redemptive value. You see it in a certain perspective, it gives it redemptive value. I'll end off with this um, one little anecdote. This one little anecdote um, to, to, to demonstrate why is it that when we do something in this world, there's something so small and we're, such, such a, we're in such a lowly world and we're such lowly people. Like we, we know who we are and, and we do one little act and all of a sudden it makes a tremendous, tremendous dent in the heavens and, 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 and the, 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 the spiritual energy that's activated is uncomprehensible. Un, un, it's, it's, it's incredible the way it's, it's described. Nowhere else in all of the spiritual realms can such godly energy be activated. Only from your one little mitzvah that you do even half-heartedly. Imagine your child comes home with a little bit of arts and crafts. Says, Mommy, look what I made in school. I made a little decoration for the sukkah. You look at it, and objectively, it looks ugly. Right? You put the teacher made them put their hand in the paint, and then made them stick their hand on, on the paper and put their name on it. And these are the, these are the handprints. These are the handprints of little, of little Jordan. And and all and this is the brilliant teacher's idea for hanging a decoration in the sukkah. What does the mother do? Amazing. Goes outside to the sukkah, hangs it up in the sukkah, calls daddy, daddy, look, beautiful. Jordan's feeling so good. Oh my gosh, Jordan, without your little arts and crafts, our sukkah would be nothing. He's feeling like a million bucks. And you know what? The father and mother mean it. They're not just Stom saying it. I mean, they want the kid to feel good, but this is beautiful. This is beautiful, right? Another person enters a sukkah, you know, and it's a sore to the eye. Not his child. It's a sore to the eye. Like, the sukkah looked beautiful before this. Like, what's it doing here? All the guests come in. Look what Jordan made. Look at our sukkah. Beautiful sukkah. Look what Jordan made. Right? Now, the same exact thing is happening with Hashem, okay? Our little measly action 
done down here. A little, little, a little mitzvah. Your little mitzvah makes the heavens. Your little mitzvah makes the day. Because Hashem is saying, look what my little Jordan did. It's my child. We are Hashem's children. Our little act means so, so much to Him. I want to go quickly to the, to the life part, the tiny life. And I'm going to say three things that I wrote down that this lesson in our relationship with Hashem, our relationship with ourselves, and our relationship with others, just a little bit lessons that we can learn from here, little tidbits that I took out um, that I'd like to share with you. Number one, in our relationship with Hashem, take advantage of your natural mercy. Hashem gave you a gift. There's something called mercy and it's given to you. It's a, it's, a, it's a natural pity that we have on others when we see that they're in, that they're the underdog, that they're, that they're in, in, a, in, a, in a hard situation. You can take literally advantage. Take advantage of it. I shouldn't give you this little gift. Take advantage of it. Activate it on your own self. As we, as, as we spoke about this, see yourself in third person. See yourself in third person so healthy. See yourself. Where you're holding. Where, where were you? You know, go through that mental exercise. You'll have such pity on yourself. Yeah. And that will activate your neshama. Now, in relationship to yourself, in relationship to yourself, I learn out that the fact that you can have a dual emotion in your heart, don't get weighed down during those days that you're having a tough day. Someone told you something really off. You're having a tough day. And you feel like you cannot continue going on until you, you take it off your heart, until you get it off your heart. I, 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 I need a, I, I, you become dysfunctional sometimes. It's such a hard day, I need a, I need a, I need to relax, I can't do anything. You should know that you have within you the capacity to continue going on with the day, continue doing good, not to not deal with it. You must get it off your heart. But your heart is, is big enough, it is big enough to have a little bit of a, of a, of a, of a negative feeling on one side, your heart is big enough to have a lot of positive feelings on the other side. You can still give love to your family. You can still, uh, you can still, you know, welcome your kids home from school with a smile. And you will survive. You will survive. You know what I'm saying? Your heart is big enough to have those two feelings at the same time. That's in relation to yourself. In relationship with others, um, I would learn out from the, <clears throat> from the knot that we discussed that when you make a knot after a cup, you have much more mass, much more connection. I would say that after an argument with the person in your relationship, after an argument or after a little bit of a rift, and you work on it and you become more connected, get ready for a lot more closeness. It would get very awkward if you try to become as close as you were before. Naturally, after having had a cut and now you have to tie it together, you're going to be a lot more closer. Get ready for it. And may I say, that's why Hashem created us this way. The fact that we have the ebb and flow, the fact that we have the back and forth of the relationship is because after the back, there's going to be a forth that wasn't like before. And so this is something to keep in mind is that after the shift, and you know, sometimes even in the rift, sometimes even when you're a little upset, I don't want to speak, I don't want to speak to him. I don't want to speak to him. You know, that's it. I'm done. Even at that time, you know that the next day you're going to speak, and you know that you're going to you're going to fix it up. And even at the time when you're upset, you can even know. By the way, I'm going to get closer. The time of the argument, you'll know you get closer. And don't fight it. Get ready for a little bit. 
don't don't try to get to the to the original closeness because it would literally be like awkward because the feeling that comes at the time is much more closeness and therefore lean into it lean into it you know let the relationship actually become closer as it should be